do keep hold of your Bibles, keep it open at Psalm 34. Uh, let me pray as we um, come to these verses together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for what you have to say to us this morning from it. May we be listening. Amen. Um, those of you who have been around for the last few weeks uh, will know that in our current series of sermons, as uh, Charlie reminded us just now, uh, we've been looking at the Psalms and we've been looking at God in the Psalms. Uh, we've been considering what, what this hymn book, this worship song playlist of ancient Israel has to show us about what our God is like. Uh, do listen back through our website or through YouTube if, if you've missed some. Uh, we've seen that God is gracious and compassionate. We've seen that he's powerful, that he's faithful. We've seen that he's a righteous judge. He's our refuge and that he's great. As we finish looking at this topic, this series today, we're going to consider the response the Psalms call us to make to God. Now, we could do a whole other sermon series just on looking at responses to God in the Psalms. Um, but we've just got one. So for this morning, we're going to zoom in just on one Psalm, Psalm 34, uh, and just one response suggested in that Psalm. Um, and so we're, as we're looking at just one theme, really, we won't sort of have points as such, or, or at least not three of them. But we'll simply consider first what the psalm says, and second, what response the psalm requires. Okay? What the psalm says, and what, uh, what response the psalm requires. But before we um, get into what the psalm says, um, let's begin by turning to the title. And so if you look down to the little typing underneath Psalm 34, um, it says that Psalm 34 is a psalm of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. So looks like there's a bit of a backstory here, uh, a context for this psalm. So it was written by David um, when he was on the run from Saul, uh, which is recorded for us uh, in the second half of the book of 1 Samuel. So David had been, um, he'd been anointed king by the prophet Samuel. But he hadn't yet become king. Um, Saul was still on the throne of Israel. And I think it's fair to say that Saul wasn't very interested in uh, handing over the reins, handing over the throne to David. Uh, so in uh, chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, in verse 10, uh, David fled from Saul to a place called Gath, and specifically to uh, Achish, the king of Gath. Um, Abimelech, uh, the name used here, is probably a kingly title for Achish. But uh, Gath proved to be no refuge for David. Uh, the reputation of his greatness followed him there. Uh, King Achish felt threatened and David had to pretend not to be in his right mind so that Achish wouldn't just do Saul's dirty work for him and kill David off. Uh, Achish had no time for another madman in his court, verse 15 of 1 Samuel 21 says. And so poor David made a hasty exit to the cave of Adullam at the start of chapter 22. And it's in this situation that David chose to pen this song, this song of deliverance, salvation and refuge. This hymn of thanksgiving that models what our response to the God of the Psalms should be. I think in many ways, um, verses four to seven, give us the, sort of the backbone of the psalm. So we're, uh, we're going to focus in specifically there and see what we can observe. Um, do follow with me as I read. Uh, from verse 4. 
I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So what do we see in these verses? Well, we see that David praises God because he sought God and God saved him. It was right there in verse four. What does this psalm say? Well, in this psalm, David says that he sought God. He cried out to God. He prayed to God. And God listened. God heard his cry. God answered him. And God's answer was a rescue. God swooped in and delivered him. In this psalm, David says that he praises God because he sought God and God saved him. But why choose this psalm over uh, any of the other 149 psalms to consider our response to God? Well, I wonder, did, did you spot the subtle shift between verses 4 and 5? And let's read just those two verses again. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Did you spot it? So the subject of verse four is David. I, me, me, my. David describes his experience in the singular first person. But in verse five, the scope suddenly widens. Those who look on him, their faces. We've gone from singular to global. Suddenly that this blessing is now open to others. In fact, to any believer anyone who looks on him. Look down at verses six and seven and you see the same pattern again. We start singular, we go to plural. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. We go from specific, this poor man, him, to general, those who, them. Uh, another example, um, look down at verse 17. And compare it to verse 6. You'll see that it's almost identical. But verse 6 is singular. And verse 17 is plural. So do you see the shift? Do you see what's going on here? David is generalising his experience in this psalm. He switches from singular to plural and back repeatedly throughout the psalm. You see... He's not writing a private journal entry here, recording a very personal example of how God very personally helped him in his personal diary, just for himself to read and remember, although he could easily have done that, given the context we've just explored. But that's not what David's trying to do here. David's written a song that he wants all believers to be able to sing. He's written a song that he wants all believers to be able to sing. He wants others to share and know the blessings that he has enjoyed. And so he makes his song our song. He, he almost seems to go out of his way to, to make the psalm unspecific, to cut out personal details and situation particulars 
to make clear that what God has done for David personally, what God has been and is like to David personally, is on offer for all believers. It's what all of us can expect if we look to God. David generalises his experience in this psalm. He makes his song our song. And he's written here an anthem for all believers to sing. And that's why we're looking at Psalm 34 this morning. So we've seen what the psalm says. Now we're going to move on to the response the psalm calls for from us. And there are a number of clear imperatives in the psalm. There's the command to praise God in verses 1 to 3. There's the command to fear God in the way we conduct our relationships in verse 9, picked up again in verses 11 to 14. But there'll have to be sermons for another day, I'm afraid. Because the one we're going to focus on this morning is the command that comes straight out of that little block, verses 4 to 7, that we've just read. The command in verse 8. Follow with me as I read. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. David's command, his call, is for us to taste and see. He commands that we taste and see that the Lord is good. The primary application of this psalm, I think, it's not to know, not to understand, it's not to remember. I don't even think that the primary application of this psalm is to praise, to fear, or to obey. I think the primary application of this psalm is to experience. They're physical words, aren't they? Tasting, seeing, they're sensory. Look up the verb taste in a thesaurus. And you'll see choose, sample, devour. Uh, look it up in a dictionary and you'll also get the metaphorical definition um, to come to a knowledge of something by living through it. That's Merriam-Webster for you. To taste is to experience. And of course, it must be personal. It has to be personal. To taste is to experience for yourself. No one else can taste and see for you. And you can't truly know if you don't taste and see for yourself. Uh, many of you, like my wife Charlotte and I, uh, might be looking forward to the long-awaited series of The Great British Bake Off, which apparently is starting very soon. And it's a great show, isn't it? The setting, the music, the drama, the presenters. But there's something missing, I think. It's enjoyable watching the contestants flap and flourish as they prepare. It's often amazing seeing the edible, edible artworks that they come up with. And it's interesting hearing what the judges make of them. But it can be a bit ultimately unsatisfying as a show. Dare I say it? Don't let Charlotte hear me say that. Why? Well, because we don't get to taste the bakes. We see how beautiful they look. We know what great effort went into them. And we hear from Paul Hollywood how good or not so good he, he might think they are but we don't get to taste them for ourselves. If you truly want to know how good food is, the only way is to experience it for yourself. You have to taste and see 
to know it's good. And David calls us to taste and see. He commands us to taste and see, to experience for ourselves and know and enjoy how good our God is. And so he, um, he fills his psalm with glorious truths for us to munch on and enjoy. So you heard them as um, Johnny and Sarah were reading. In fact, we get 14 uh, certain statements about God in this psalm. 14 unchanging truths, 14 unfailing promises about what God is like, how he relates to his people, what he has done, is doing, and will do for them. Now, uh, we could take one sermon to consider each of them, but let's just try and do a very brief, broad uh, over, sweep over of a few of them uh, for a couple of minutes now. So number one, verse four, um, like Moses descended, descending from the mountain of the Lord, like Jesus when he was transfigured, God makes radiant those who look on him, verse four, and ensures that they're never ashamed. He makes our faces shine with his glory reflected on us. Number two, verse seven, like Israel fleeing Egypt, like God's people quaking as they stood on the borders of the promised land. God himself surrounds us, his church. He utterly envelops us and he delivers us. No one's going to get him with God surrounding us. Number three, he delivers us from what? Verse, verse 17, verse 19. He delivers us from all our troubles. All. The word all is actually in this psalm eight times in the Hebrew. Not just some of our troubles not only just the spiritual ones. Now this deliverance may not happen now, and it may not happen soon, but one day, one day, God will deliver us from all our troubles. Not a single sin, sickness, evil spirit, or enemy will be left standing. God will deliver us from all our troubles. Number four, we will be blessed in verse eight like the righteous one of Psalm 1, like God's holy people of the Beatitudes, we will be blessed as we hide in our Saviour's loving arms, as we take refuge in him. The next one, uh, we will lack nothing, verse 9. We will lack no good thing, verse 10, in case you didn't get it in verse 9. We will have everything we need and far more, not necessarily everything we want, but we will have every good thing, verse 10. We'll have everything we need, everything that is good for us. All that is good, God will give us. We will have every blessing from him. Even the lion, the king of the savannah, goes hungry and can't find what it needs in verse 10. But no such thing will happen to us as God's people. Sixth one. The face of the Lord will be towards us. Verse 15. His eyes, his ears will be upon us. He'll be turned towards us in love and kindness, never showing us his back. Like a vigilant parent, his eyes will watch us closely, his ears listening out for our cries in the night. In the seventh one, he will be quick to comfort us. Verse 18, what a beautiful verse. 
Those of us who are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, the tired, the exhausted, the beaten, the broken. Well, he will draw near to those people and be right there, down in the depths with them. He is not a God only for the good times or a God only for the strong. He's a God for the weak, a God in the sorrow, in the misery, in the depression, in the despair. And number eight, our future will be totally different from that of those who oppose and hate us and him. In the final verses of the psalm, when the storm of judgment comes, they will be swept away, condemned by their own sin. But those who hide in God, those who crouch under his wing, in his fortress, under his barricade, well, they will be rescued. Verse 22. They need fear no harm. Their futures will be totally safe with him. Nothing can hurt them. So brothers and sisters, taste and see that the Lord is good. Know these truths and devour them. Relish and savour them. Reflect on them. Sing them back to God. Pray them back to God. Think and daydream about them. Write them, draw them, paint them. Decorate your home and your social media with them. Talk about them. Enjoy them. Because they are richer than the finest meal, sweeter than the most luxurious dessert, fresher than the juiciest mango. Taste and see that the Lord is good, says David. Experience for yourself the goodness of our God. And when you're done for a while, munching on the Jews of Psalm 34, try a different course. Go elsewhere in the Bible. The Psalms frequently tell us that reading and enjoying God's words to us in Scripture is like tasting sweet food. Psalm 119, verse 103, for example. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. If you want to taste God's goodness, savour and devour his word. But um, there are two traps for us to avoid. Uh, number one, don't spend so long preparing the meal that you never sit down to eat. Don't spend so long preparing the meal that you never sit down to eat. If you're, um, if you're anything like me, you could be tempted to be a bit like Martha in Luke 10 verses 38 to 42. You make your Christian life about being busy for God, serving him, serving others. And don't get me wrong, a huge part of the Christian life is to serve one another and to serve our community. But that shouldn't be the heart of our personal Christian life. The heart of our faith shouldn't be our service. It shouldn't be what we are doing for God. It should be. In fact, in fact, I think it must be enjoying what he has done for us. If the heart of our faith is about what we are doing for God, I think we've made a mistake. It must be about enjoying what he has done for us. But let me just read from Luke 10, the account of Mary and Martha, uh, when Jesus went to visit their house, from verse 40 of Luke 10. 
But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better. Don't spend so long preparing the meal that you never sit down to eat. And the second warning, the second trap, don't eat the meal, but ignore the host. Now this is the trap that the Pharisees fell into. Jesus accused them in John 5, verses 39 and 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It can be, um, it can be easy to, to read and get to know the Bible, as if that is the end, as if the aim is to know the Bible really well. But knowing the Bible really well, it isn't the end, it's the means. The means for knowing God really well. So don't be a Pharisee. Don't eat the meal, but forget the host, the one serving you the meal, the one who's made it for you. Don't read the Bible only to get to know the Bible better. By all means, get to know your Bible better. Learn your way around the bits that you don't know so well. Uh, read commentaries, learn verses, study Greek and Hebrew. But don't soak in the word as if knowing the Bible well is the end goal. No, no. Chew on the scriptures so that by them you may come to know the one they are about. I am the bread of life. John records Jesus saying in John 6 verse 35, Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The Bible is all about Jesus. Every page of it. It's Jesus who's the bread of life. It's Jesus who is the Passover lamb. So feed on him. He will satisfy us, nourish us, fill us up and delight our taste buds. If you want to taste the goodness of God, devour Christ through his word. Make him your daily bread and your precious honey. Meditate on him. Think about him. Pray to him. Sing about him. Talk about him. Enjoy him. We've had two traps to avoid, but let me, let me add a, a slight side point here too. I think one of the great sadnesses of this season is that we can't easily enjoy the meal that Christ has provided for us as believers to nourish us and help us, the Lord's Supper. I wonder, um, did you know, uh, I've been reading the Reformers a bit recently, and um, for, uh, for the Reformers, for Calvin, for Luther, for, for those guys, the Lord's Supper was right up there as an essential part of the weekly gathering of God's people sitting just under the preaching of God's word and importance. What they have made, I wonder, of this scenario where we haven't been able to share it for many months. Let me just gently ask, are we missing it? Are we longing to share the Lord's Supper together again, this meal that God's given us to nourish us? So I think we should be missing it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Perhaps there are some here this morning 
um, who haven't tasted God's goodness before. Perhaps you're listening in and you're visiting, you're new to the area, or you're listening in because a friend or family member shared the link with you. Or maybe even you've been in church a long time, your whole life. But you haven't known God's goodness for yourself. You relied on the faith of others, the experience of others. You know much, but you haven't experienced God's goodness for yourself. Let me encourage you to come to God quietly in your heart today and ask him to show you his goodness, that you might taste it for yourself. But perhaps you have tasted that the Lord is good. You've sort of forgotten the taste. You haven't tasted in a while. It's like that dish you tried at a Russian restaurant 10 years ago. You just can't actually quite remember what it tastes like. You've become a bit bogged down in life, raising children, building your career, buying, fixing up at your house, or bogged down in service, being on the rotor for this, the team for that, or bogged down in knowledge, reading theology, learning Greek, studying the commentaries. You've stopped coming to God to feed on him and enjoy him. You've forgotten how, and you're hungry. In fact, you're famished. You're running on empty and you know it. Well, if that's you, let me encourage you just to take some time out in the next day or two and to come back to God and to taste him again for yourself. And it might be worth taking some time with your spouse or a good Christian friend in a busy city where we have busy lives, take some time to chew over what life looks like for you at the moment and your priorities. Are there some things that need to give? Are there some priorities that need to shift? So you've got more time, more headspace to enjoy tasting Jesus for yourself. For there are a few greater commands in the Bible, for me at least, than the command of Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's just have a few moments of quiet now, and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm. Thank you for this psalm that we can claim as our own, the song of David, that he makes our song. Thank you for the extraordinary truths it includes, what you've done for us, of how you relate to us, of what you will do for us. May we be people who taste and see for ourselves your goodness. Amen.